also relevant to this internalized ageism is the abundant data showing that if you have internalized ageism, you are likely to get heart disease and die from it seven and a half years earlier. You have more inflammation in your body. You are more likely to have Alzheimer's markers in your cerebrospinal fluid. You are less likely to recover well from hospitalization or surgeries. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. This episode is sponsored by Age Up. Did you know that one in three 65-year-olds live into their 90s but few can afford it? Age Up provides supplemental income to help fill in the financial gaps that come with a long life. To find out more, visit age-up.com. Today on the Breaking Money Silence podcast, we are going to be talking with Louise Aronson. She is a leading geriatrician, writer, educator, professor of medicine at UCSF, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, and Pulitzer Surprise finalist, Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, and Reimagining Life. Welcome to the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was really excited to discover your work and to learn more about this book about elderhood. And so before we get into kind of the meat of all of this, can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to write a book about elderhood and and why you're passionate about it? Uh, Well, you know, I kind of happened into working with old people once I was already a doctor. Uh, I initially thought I'd be a pediatrician, but it turns out the doctor role is often to cause the child harm, and that was just not something that I could do. I started taking care of adults, and I found a few things about elders, which was that they have every type of medical problem, which people often see as a negative, but it also means you have every type of opportunity to help someone, and when you're a clinician, that is hugely gratifying. As people get older, you don't just Uh, This is a failing of medicine generally, but we often think about the disease or the organ. And I'm actually much more interested in unique human beings. And as people are older, you need to think about the person's functional status, what their time horizon is, who their social supports are, what their physical abilities are. So it allowed me to do sort of all of medicine and get to know people as unique human beings in unique contexts and pull all that together. Plus, as you mentioned with my MFA, I like stories. So the older you are, the more stories you have. So for me, it was just a win-win-win. And um, I surprised myself by going into this, but it is a little joy. Geriatricians, this is a a well-kept secret. We are the happiest of physicians whenever they do surveys. So people think like, ooh, you do that. Like, oh, that's so nice of you to do. Actually, it's 
hugely gratifying, satisfying, endlessly interesting with opportunities for intellectual growth and creativity and personal connection. So, so that's how I got into old age. How I, I now this is a really big digression from your initial question, which I just remembered, which was like, why did I write this book? So I'm a writer and a doctor, and I kind of thought of these things as separate careers. And then it occurred to me I could use all the writing skills I'd learned, which was basically a focus on fiction writing, and try and transform how people think and feel about old age, because we have, most of us put our, ourselves in this spot where people don't want to grow old, but they also don't want to die young. So you have to do one or the other, and I think growing old is the better option, and it could be better still if we actually acknowledge the challenges and apply to them the same creativity we apply to childhood and adulthood. That is awesome. You know, I grew up in a family where there is a lot of longevity. And so the whole idea that it's a satisfying career and that it's a really interesting holistic way to practice is exciting and kind of something that I hadn't thought about. Our society is so full of age bias. And, and one of the things you talk about is how this bias against aging really kind of impacts your patients, impacts their families, and impacts all of us. So can you give me an example of how that age bias shows up in medicine and in what ways does it actually cost us? Oh, where to begin? It's everywhere in medicine. It's baked into our medical system. So let's start with the real basics, right? We have pediatric hospitals and we have adult hospitals. We have pediatric specialists and we have adult specialists. But if I were to line up an eight-year-old, a 38-year-old, and an 88-year-old, would you know which one was which, even if you'd never met these people before? Yeah, yeah. you would, because they look completely different, right? They look <laughs> completely different because they're by, I know, you thought it was a trick question. It's actually not a trick question. Of course you know they're different. I mean, even it's like a 58-year-old and 88-year-old, they are different. We all know this. Like, the eight-year-old knows this, right? They are different because their biology is different. Their physiology is different. How they spend their days are different. Their, their history throughout life, you know? I mean, some people were really old. Now there weren't cars, much less smartphones. Um, so, so life changes, and we know this, and we have a healthcare system that acknowledges childhood and adulthood and totally ignores, well, not totally, but mostly ignores elderhood. This plays out in all sorts of ways. So, for example, like how do we get innovations in medicine? So the U.S. healthcare system is ranked 37th internationally. It, it's pretty bad. It's particularly bad at preventing illness. It's actually really good if you're super sick. So we have a payment structure that wants you to get super sick, and then we're really good at that and at innovations. So you get innovation from research. In the, the beginning of the modern research era, science you try and control as much as you can. So they basically only studied heterosexual, healthy, able-bodied white men between certain ages. Then they found when they applied those results to women, for example, they, they had excluded the women because they said, well, they've got these funny hormones, they've got these different body parts, we don't know what to do with that. So they said they were different. Then they got the results and they applied it to them and guess what, they got different outcomes because they were different. So it turned out that if you really wanted to do well by a population, and this included women and people of color, they mandated in the 80s to include them in trials of new devices and drugs. In the 90s, they discovered children were different, that maybe you shouldn't give the same dose to the two-year-old as the 42-year-old. So they discovered that, and they mandated the inclusion of children in trials. When did they mandate the inclusion of older people in trials? They haven't. No, 2019. So it's better than they haven't, but it's pretty recent, 2019. So literally 30 years after they mandated the inclusion of women. And we all know that older adults use more health care. 
and this is actually used against them. But we have different needs at different phases of life. To build a healthcare system that doesn't acknowledge old age is like building an educational system that doesn't acknowledge childhood. It's pure idiocy. We spend a lot of money on educating young people. We spend a lot of money on employing adults. We spend more money on older people being ill. We have different needs at different phases of life. I will just add though, that people in their 70s, at least until the pandemic, were the fastest growing segment of the workforce. So as we live longer, we can work longer. For some people, this is a necessity. And for others, it's a way of finding meaning and purpose. Does this bias against aging affect both men and women the same or differently? Differently, actually. And men and women age differently. So men tend to have fewer medical problems, but die significantly earlier. Like if, if you look at the population as a whole, it's 51% women, you get to age 65 and it's 57% women, you get over age 80 and it's two thirds women and you get over age 100 and it's over 80% women. So men die. And if men were dying at younger groups, we would probably talk about the disproportional deaths of men, like well, yes. doing something to kill men, right? But, but we don't talk about it because once a man is old, I guess he doesn't have value either. On the other hand, women have much more burden of disease, arthritis, all this sort of stuff. And then we sort of create this warehousing system where we lock people away when they need help and, and ignore them. We do live in a society that is obsessed with youth. Um, thinking about it in different ways, about how it impacts different genders at different times, different races, different cultures, but also thinking about how does that impact our mindset? And I know, given the work that I do, that how we think about things really impacts our behavior and ultimately our well-being. So when we think about our aging mindset, how do you see that as uh, impacting somebody's health or their ability to kind of take care of themselves as they age? It's actually huge and there's abundant research on this. So there is this phenomenon called an internalized ageism. So, you know, like any ism, it's a prejudice, a negative prejudice against a group. So, but for most groups, it doesn't get internalized. Now for homophobia, it did for many years, although in younger generations, there's much less of that. Um, but most isms are about others. But ageism is one where it's actually ubiquitous among older people themselves, more the standard than not. And we see this in a bunch of ways. When you use the language for old age, so senior, elder, elderly, geriatric, like any of these things, they do surveys every few years asking which names people prefer. None of them, right? So it's the only stage of life where, you know, maybe some people are thrilled about being called middle age, but mostly like you call a teenager a teenager, you call a toddler a toddler, you call an adult an adult, people don't freak out. We use any of the words for old age and people are like, no, that's not me. You know, sort of, sort of like what you were saying about your aunt going in and saying, I'm, I'm playing for the old people, even though she's yes. 78, right? Yes. Because we have come to associate those terms with the debility of advanced old age, not understanding that old age actually, so when you look historically and biologically, old age begins somewhere between the ages of 60 and 70, which most people don't like to hear. So biologically, that's when it begins. But just like childhood and adulthood, it has multiple substages. And for someone like you with the longevity in your family, you may be in elderhood for 40 years, right? So as long as you were in adulthood and twice as long as you were a kid, right? Well, so you're not gonna be the same woman for 40 years. And what's interesting, I just want to jump in because it, it's interesting because I do have a mindset that old age isn't necessarily bad and we live long mm -hmm. in our family mm -hmm. and, you know, all of this positive stuff. But the minute you just said you might be in old age for 40 years and my head went, what? Like, 
No. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I just did that to you. Exactly. Well, and that was part of how I came to write this book too, because I was always pro elder, right? I'm a geriatrician. I'm an advocate. And then I got into middle age. You know, I'm over 50. It happened to me when I was always saying it happens to women over 50. And that was before I let my hair go gray. I was still dying it brown. And suddenly I was like, oh, right, this means me too. And I started making little comments, especially to my students in their early 20s, right, about, well, I can't do that anymore because I'm older. You know, well, it's like, oh my God, I'm adding to the problem. And it took me a couple of years, but I retrained myself. There are some negatives, you know, some bodily negatives of, um, you know, I can't run as quickly. I can't, there are certain things that are harder, et cetera. But we see this internationally, except among the poorest countries. It's called the U-shaped curve of happiness. So kids are relatively happy. Old people are really happy. And the people who are least happy are the adults. They're the ones fostering this notion of you don't want to grow old. But this shows, so adults have less happiness, less life satisfaction, more anxiety. And as you move in towards 60, everything starts getting better on that score. So that's a well-kept secret. Now, also relevant to this internalized ageism is the abundant data showing that if you have internalized ageism, you are likely to get heart disease and die from it seven and a half years earlier. You have more inflammation in your body. You are more likely to have Alzheimer's markers in your cerebrospinal fluid. You are less likely to recover well from hospitalization or surgeries. I can go on and on and on. And there might be some, there are probably some neurochemical reasons for that. And there are also the fact that if you believe you can get better after a surgery, you're going to do the work it takes. And will it take a little more work to bounce back if you're 75 instead of 45? Absolutely. I'm not denying the changes of age. They are real. But can you do it? Absolutely. But not if you don't try. Well, and it, I just think mindsets are so powerful because a lot of what I talk about on this show okay. is certainly your money mindset, your money talk mindset, and how that impacts your ability to change your financial habits or to take care of yourself over the course of your lifetime or to work on your relationship and talking about money with your partner or your family or whatever it might be. And so one of the things that I often see in terms of a mindset for women is a lot of women, and there is research to back this up, one of their biggest fears as they age or move towards retirement is the fear of becoming a burden to their kids. And so that fear you know, can be positive and that it motivates them to financially plan. It motivates them to have financial conversations. It also can be quite negative because it can become so overwhelming that they get paralyzed and don't do anything and don't have these conversations. But after really learning about your work and thinking about our conversation today, I just wonder, should women be thinking of it as a burden or is there another way to be thinking about this phase in life when you may need more support? When people are injured, they're a burden. Um, sometimes people are just a burden because they're overworked. Like we're all burdens to other people most of our lives. Now, are we, are we, do we require more help at the beginning and the end and certain key times in between without question? That is the natural human life cycle. Most of us at this point in human history will live it. Why is it okay to need help if you've broken your leg or if you're nine months pregnant or if you have cancer or if you're two years old, but it's not okay to need help if you're 82 or 92, right? It's this double standard that makes no sense, especially when most of us will live to be old. You're blowing my mind. I just have to jump in. Because <laughs> part of me is like, oh, I buy into all of this. And certainly- I was too, that's how I happened to write the book. <laughs> we just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. But once you start changing, I literally changed myself and it's super cool. 
but it is pretty exciting. And yet my own mother, who will be 87 next month, thanking me for calling her, which is absurd because we have been close my whole life, which is now 56 years. In COVID, she is in assisted living, so she hasn't been able to come out much. So we've been speaking daily. She keeps thanking me. It's, it's, it, it makes me sad, honestly, um, because we laugh. We have a great time every day. We're FaceTiming or whatever, you know, and then she'll make comments like, okay, so she had trouble with Netflix twice this week and it was different problems. And she's like, I'm just becoming a little old lady. But she is a little lady, really short. She's going to be 87. So what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. I love that particular little old lady. I happen to love little ladies. Generally, there's nothing wrong with them. That is so interesting because it's true. But I actually developed a better relationship with my mother as she aged because she softened up a little bit. I certainly mm -hmm. matured. And some of my most fondest memories with my mom were the year before she passed away. So I do think it's, it's a really interesting thing we're talking about today about how insidious it is and how it's woven into the fabric of our society. And I talk about that a lot when it comes to money, but I guess I've never really looked at this in terms of ageism. And so to, mm -hmm. to get to money, what are the conversations that you think people should be having around aging that maybe they're not because they're afraid of this topic or have a bias against it? Uh, do you have any thoughts about the financial piece? Um, yeah, I mean, I think planning is important. I should say that I'm not an expert in the financial piece, so just that caveat, but I have read articles that say, um, a couple of things which seem completely contradictory. So I assume it's different people doing different things. Some people just don't save, um, assuming, I don't know what, a divine intervention or just, you know, like living in the moment. Um, that's, but most of us will live to be old. So unless you have a really good reason to think that you're gonna die, um, that then planning for your old age makes a lot of sense. You in terms of medical and just life planning, um, we, we have abundant data showing that people who plan for their old age and deaths get the old age and deaths they want much more commonly than people who don't, who tend to get exactly what they didn't want as others swoop in and take control and make decisions you didn't want. So I can only assume that that extrapolates to finances. If you want to live a certain way, then it's best to plan for it. We do see since women tend to, um, in heterosexual couples, women tend to outlive their spouses or partners um, by many years. Sometimes um, they will spend a disproportionate share on the man's care because they have it. Actually, I was speaking last week to a new residential care facility here in San Francisco, and they were talking about couples where, you know, that the woman was having trouble physically managing the guy as he got more severe with his yeah. memory loss, and so he was going to come in. And it's a lovely, lovely place. And I worried that most of the money would go to his care, leaving nothing for her. This is part about older women and institutionalized more than men, particularly at the ends of their lives. So I think if you're part of a couple, you need to decide in advance how much there's going to be so that everybody gets care, so that there's equity in the finances. Once upon a time, and I believe this has improved, you know, men worked more than women and men got paid, men still get paid more than women, pensions are higher. There were things that people would sign that would give better upfront benefits, cash payouts and pharmacy benefits while the man was alive. And that would mean, because there was just a total chunk the company was gonna pay for retirement, that once the man died, having paid more upfront, there was less left for him. Wow. Um, so I think now there's a bias. The policies. Yes. 
Absolutely, you need to look at the and make smart decisions. Also consider men and women's different strengths. And I think this, this encore career thing, um, I'm, I'm, I'm debating about that topic because I think if it becomes the norm, it looks like retirement was principally an epiphenomenon of the 20th century that people didn't really retire before that, except for the very wealthy. And it's looking like for most of us, we're going to keep working. So is it just a different phase of career? I, I think a good analogy for this, the increased decades of healthy elderhood are, um, is adolescence, which didn't exist until the 1800s. So through most of teenage history, you know, for most of human history. And now it just seems to get longer. Like the latest studies are like the adolescent brain is alive and well at age 25. So, you know, the healthy elderhood is longer and bigger, but we need to think what that means. And we also need to not lift it up at the expense of advanced old age. So there are a lot of anti-ageism campaigns and there's one in Boston that actually talks about, I'm not over the hill and it has this gorgeous woman smiling in her eighties. Well, in the first place, I wasn't that pretty at 18. So, you know, that's already an exceptional elder. And the second place, she is over the hill. Like our, our lives are an arc and if she's in her eighties, she is. And so the, the term over the hill isn't wrong. It's that we think it's bad is wrong. Right, because we're over the hill for half our lives. It's back to the um, bias that we started right. talking yeah. about. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it as a curve, as a normative curve with a midpoint, then half our lives, by definition, were over the hill, and that needs to be okay. And in fact, we can do more to boost it up. They also have this this old guy sort of with his fists up, saying, "I'm anything but frail." Well, he's also in his 80s, so either he's going to die pretty precipitously or he's going to become frail. And that campaign is actually saying it's only okay to be old if you're not frail. If we live in that world, we are all screwed unless we die suddenly, and dying suddenly is vanishingly rare. So it behooves all of us to have empathy and to have creativity for people who are frail. Because um, you can be frail and still be contributing in any number of ways. We know from caregivers that some of them derive huge satisfaction and meaning from that role. This has made me realize a couple of things I want to just highlight. One is that I spend a lot of time educating people about the money messages that are in our society mm -hmm. and how we need to notice what we're being told about finance and is it a myth or is it true? And really adding to that is what are the myths out there about aging? What are the different messages out there about aging and how does that impact how you take care of yourself? The other piece, because the show is Breaking Money Silence, has to do with the <laughs> idea that if you plan for your aging process, that you are going to be more in control and more likely to get the outcome you want is really, I think, a big motivator for women and men and advisors out there to say, this is worth doing it now. And I have had the fortune, despite our longevity, we also do a nice job in our family of planning for the future and having at least the money conversations. I would say the feeling conversations is kind of what I'm trying to uh, do more and more this generation. Uh, but, you know, it really just strikes me as there's so much richness to what you're talking about and so much awareness that I've had in a short period of time and hopefully my <laughs> right. listeners have as well, Louise, that I really want people to be able to find out more about your work, to buy your book. So let us know where we can continue to learn from you. Uh, so I have a website www.louisearonson.com. So you can see, you know, videos, audio, buy the book, learn more about me, et cetera. Um, send me messages because we need more warriors in this work. It will help us all. Like I've, I've 
really not met a human being that doesn't want to be in control of their life and what is done to and for them throughout life. And we can do this. I'm on Twitter at, at Louise Aronson, very original handles. Um, Instagram at Louise Aronson SF for San Francisco. So I'm pretty easy to find. Um, I have a low frequency name, so I use it with abandon. Excellent. Um, this has been a total pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. And I would say I'm going to just give you a chance to have one key takeaway because you talked about people sending you messages. So what's the ask of my audience? I think we should all create the future we want to live by creating, uh, by improving the old, the current old age of people who are old now and by creating an old age that doesn't scare you and that you can look we actually know how to do this. We just need to get the work done and we can all contribute in ways big and small. They all count. Awesome. Well, I love talking with you today. It was a pleasure. And thank you so much for breaking money silence with me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. This episode is sponsored by Age Up. Did you know that one in three 65 year olds live into their nineties, but few can afford it? AgeUp provides supplemental income to help fill in the financial gaps that come with a long life. To find out more, visit age-up.com. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.